Autoimmune diseases occur when our immune systems start to attack our own cells rather than foreign invaders. Unfortunately, very little is known about how these disorders arise in otherwise healthy individuals. Join us as we talk with B-cell immunologist and autoimmune clinician, Dr. Julie Zickerman, as we discuss how to control these inappropriate immune responses. Don't know much biology. Hello, and welcome to Radio Bio. I am your host, Genevieve Mullins. And I'm Jackie Shea. Um, and today we are joined by uh, Dr. Julie Zickerman, a researcher at UCSF. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what are some of the questions that you're looking at today? And um, hopefully we can just get started by maybe, maybe like give us a broad scope of like what you study. So... Um, I guess right now I would consider myself an immunologist that is focused on B cells, which are the cells that make antibodies. Antibodies, as you know, are really important in protecting us against infections. Um, And uh, my focus is really on how um, these kinds of B cell responses to make antibodies are controlled, how we know to make appropriate amounts and types of antibodies, how those can be Um, how we can be restrained from making inappropriate responses to the body's own tissues. B cells are like soldiers in the immune system that make their own weapons to fight off infection. And the reason I got interested in this really is because um, I'm a physician and I treat patients with autoimmune disease. So examples of autoimmune diseases that I treat are rheumatoid arthritis and a disease called lupus in which patients make autoantibodies, antibodies that aren't really directed against microbes or infections, but are actually inappropriately directed against the body's own tissues. Mm. Um, And so it's kind of that work clinically that's inspired the types of things I'm interested in studying in my lab. Oh, that's really awesome. So, like, paint the picture for me a little bit. You get an infection, and... What does B-cell response look like in the body? So B-cells are, so they're one of two main cell populations um, in the immune system that make uh, a so-called adaptive immune response. So there are T-cells and B-cells. And the unique thing about T and B-cells is that they have um, receptors on their surface called antigen receptors that can recognize almost anything out there. The genes for these receptors on B and T cells are broken into segments that are randomly selected and put together to form the finished receptor. Other immune cells have receptors that are fixed from birth and can only recognize shared structures, whereas B and T cells can have a new set of receptors. This randomness allows B cells to recognize anything, like virtually any lipid, carbohydrate, or protein. So a normal immune response would be B cells sort of complete their path of development And then they're in this sort of mature but resting state, waiting for you to encounter an infection. When B cells um, kind of have a receptor that binds to an invading organism, um, they become activated and they start to divide and expand. So you can take one very rare clone that recognizes um, a microorganism and suddenly have many, many copies of that cell with the same receptor. Um, If they get in the appropriate setting, 
they can either kind of differentiate and become a plasma cell. A plasma cell is a cell that takes that same receptor and now secretes it in high quantities as a protective antibody. And B cells have the capacity sometimes to do something very special, which is to enter a response where they can mutate the receptor and increase its affinity, like an antigen on a microorganism by um, an entire order of magnitude or more, because they can mutate and the affinity can climb and climb. And any random cell that has mutated in the right direction gets selected. And so then you can end up with um, long-lived plasma cells that they can home to the bone marrow, live there, and secrete like high titers of protected antibodies for years and years. Basically, B cells have two options during an immune response. To either become a plasma cell, like Dr. Zickman was just describing, which will sit in the bone marrow with easy access to the bloodstream and secrete antibodies into the blood for years to protect from infection. Or they can become a memory B cell, which is going to survey your tissues to look for future infections and basically help initiate those future responses against those types of infections. These are the two ways the B cells differentiate. And the fate of this differentiation is specifically the output of the germinal center reaction found in the lymph nodes and spleen. So the real way that B cells protect us is really through this response. Mm. And this is the type of response we try to harness when we vaccinate people. Oh, okay. I see. So this is such a, you know, complex but important area of research. What kind of led you to start asking these questions? What brought you to this research? Um, well, <clears throat> as I suggested, I think you know I think I've always been interested in autoimmune responses. So what I just described is how things should go. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, some patients have plasma cells that are secreting antibodies that are not really protective, but that are actually causing tissue damage because they're recognizing tissues in the body. Um, and really, once you make a long-lived plasma cell that's secreting autoantibodies, it's very hard to treat patients like that. So long-lived plasma cells are kind of funny. They don't divide. So they live for years. So a lot of the medications that we might use to treat autoimmune disease don't really touch plasma cells. And it's hard to selectively target an autoreactive plasma cell from a regular plasma cell. So um, there a lot is at stake in sort of keeping... Uh, preventing the generation of any kind of long-lived plasma cell that's secreting an autoantibody. Because once you get there, you're in a fair amount of trouble. Um, so definitely the clinical side of things was um, an inspiration. But um, the truth is, in, in the context of training in immunology and developing a scientific career, a lot of what happened, I think, was luck, good luck and bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> So um, maybe a little randomness. <laughs> oh, for, yes, yes. There, there was a non-linear path <laughs> to where I finally arrived, um, and actually, um, some of what determined what I ended up studying was um, a, a series of what seemed like unhappy accidents when I was training. So um, I came to UCSF as a rheumatology fellow to train clinically to treat people with autoimmune disease, and in that setting, I started. Um, doing uh, some postdoctoral training in immunology with Art Weiss, who is a, uh, a very well-known T-cell receptor signaling biologist. So he um, has been um, 
doing research on this topic for a couple of decades and discovered a lot of the important molecules that transmit signals from the T-cell receptor into the cell. Um, and I was very lucky to end up joining his lab. I didn't know how lucky until year, <laughs> the years went by. Um, and so I started off actually studying T-cells, like most people in the lab. Um, and around the time when I was putting a story together, um, the story actually got scooped by another group, which in science happens sometimes. And it means that somebody, for unclear reasons, has been doing the exact same thing as you and just published first, <laughs> unbeknownst to you. It's funny because the project in question seemed to me quite obscure. And so I was particularly surprised that scooping was even possible. And I, I, I will spare everybody the details, but... <laughs> Um, after kind of recovering from the shock and depression of this event, I, I started studying B cells. Um, and that sort of got me a little more interested in basic B cell biology. And ironically, years later, I started a new project in the lab. I was still a postdoc. Now using a reporter of signal transduction downstream of T cells and B cells. So this was sort of a different approach to look at the same process, which is, can we either modulate or sense how signals are coming into a T cell or how signals are coming into a B cell to understand the response? And ironically, just as we were putting together a story about how this reporter operated in T cells, another lab scooped us by generating the exact same construct and publishing <laughs> first. And so again, I was, I was, <laughs> I recovered from <laughs> the dismay. And then I thought, well, there are always B cells. And so Again, I started studying this reporter in B cells. And in both cases, I have to say things worked out well in the end. So we managed to publish several papers on the project. And we ultimately published a nice story about this, using this reporter in B cells in the journal Nature. So one lesson from this is being scooped is a blessing in disguise sometimes because it makes you look for new and less obvious phenotypes and phenomena. But as a result of all of these accidents, despite training in a T-cell lab, I turned into a B-cell biologist. <laughs> so there's sort of my reason reasoned approach, which is technically I do treat patients with autoantibody-mediated diseases, and so I'm interested in that. But then there's the underside story, which is I ended up studying B-cells because <laughs> the T-cell field got so competitive. <laughs> But that, that's sort of somewhere. an approximation, but there's some truth to it. Oh, yeah. It's nice. I actually know, like, way too many of the papers you just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently I'm getting at that point in my <laughs> career that I can recognize papers now. I'm like, oh, I've read that one. <laughs> um, Even if alluded to in a very vague way. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So getting back to, like what you actually do. Um, and so you study how the response of the B cells is controlled. Um, so how are B cell responses controlled? And like, because I mean, that's really important to control that, right? So that you don't get these self-reactive types of responses. Mm -hmm. um, so can you kind of walk us through what kinds of controls are in place to keep that from happening? Um, so it's, it's a very interesting field and I think from early on in my training until now, I continue to kind of circle back to this question. Um, it's There um, are like a couple of decades worth of classic immunological studies that have um, identified a bunch of mechanisms that are in place 
to prevent um, B cells from making inappropriate responses to self-tissues. And the, the answer to the question is really there are like multiple layered mechanisms, one after the other after the other. Think about it like levees to prevent hurricane floods. To prevent the ocean from destroying cities, you must put in multiple levees to ensure that backups are in place in case levees break. This is the same principle to control unwanted and potentially destructive B-cell responses. One of these layers of control is to take the antigen receptor that we talked about and replace it again and again and again until the B-cell finds one that is no longer self-reactive. And that is how you can prevent self-reactive B-cells from damaging the body. And in in B-cells, receptor editing seems to have evolved as a cool way to save resources. So you don't just kill the cell, you can rescue the cell. And then there are a whole bunch of mechanisms. So even if you get a slightly self-reactive B cell surviving and maturing, then there's a whole layer of mechanisms that keep those B cells from mounting an inappropriate response to self-antigens. B cells, and this is again unique to B cells and T cells don't do this, can downregulate the IgM B cell receptor. So IgM is one of the isotypes um, of the B cell receptor that's expressed on a mature, naive B cell. So that's a B cell that's completed its development, but it hasn't been activated in response to an infection yet. And it's just sitting there waiting to make a response. So one of it expresses two B cell receptors on the surface, which is an interesting topic that we also <laughs> we're also interested in studying. But one of these IgM gets downregulated in proportion to how self-reactive that B cell is. So you can imagine that the more chronic um, stimulation by self-antigens a B cell gets, the more it downregulates its receptor until it hits a happy medium where it remains quiet, it doesn't get activated. And so that's one pretty important mechanism that's been seen in a lot of different settings, and it's actually probably active in human B cells too, which is nice. Consider a drug addict. A drug addict needs to use more and more of their drug of choice to get high because they have become tolerant to it. The B cells are exposed to these self-antigens that recognize and respond like a drug addict and become tolerant to the levels of antigen found inside the body. Um, Some self-reactive B cells also suppress signaling downstream of the B cell receptor. So it's another way to stay off. They basically dampen their sensitivity to their environment. And finally, there's some evidence that those cells also have a shorter half, uh, half-life, so they don't survive as well. And so you gradually deplete them from your mature repertoire. So it's sort of a, a combination of um, mechanisms that both reduce the number and reduce the function of self-reactive cells. Um, I think the funny thing about B cells is we still, we still keep self-reactive B cells alive. And actually, one of the things I ended up finding is a, a, in in my postdoctoral research is that a lot of our normal B cell repertoire is at least somewhat self-reactive. And so there's kind of a paradox. I think we're selecting B cells to be a little self-reactive and that that's functional and protective, but you have to keep them from making a response until the appropriate moment. In what way are we selecting? Like, how are we selecting? Well, for B cells to develop normally, they need to get a series of signals through the B cell receptor. It can't be too strong because that means they're self-reactive, but it can't be too weak. Um, And I think the fact that they require a bit of a signal is why we end up with a slightly self-reactive repertoire. 
That's known to be the case for T-cells, where there's both positive and negative selection. And there's kind of this Goldilocks model of how you select a normal T-cell repertoire. Um, if it's too weak, it's not very valuable. That T-cell can't see anything, and so it can't make a response. And if it's too strong, it's self-reactive and it's dangerous. And so you need to select a final repertoire that's functional. Whether that's actually the case in B-cells has been sort of controversial, but it, it probably is. And people have argued theoretically that you want B-cells to be able to see like typical biological patterns because those patterns are used by microbes as well. They have polysaccharides, they have proteins on their surface. And so you want a B-cell receptor that vaguely can recognize these patterns, but not too strongly, so that it can make a response to foreign pathogens, but you don't want it to make an inappropriate response to self. It's kind of a harder problem to solve for B-cells because what, I mean, there are so many possible things that a B-cell can see, and it does see them weakly. Mm -hmm. So you want to keep them around, but you want to keep them quiet. Mm. Yeah. And it honestly is probably good that the B-cells are at least a little bit self-reactive, since um, we know that some viruses and some, like, bacteria have very similar types of, like, patterns on them that we wouldn't be able to recognize if they weren't also kind like because they're so close to something we already have and so like we'd have to be able to recognize it but unfortunately it also will kind of recognize us by just because they're similar but well there's an um i think one really great example of that is um pneumococcal pneumonia so pneumococcus is um, an important human pathogen, and it's a bacteria that's totally coated in polysaccharides. And um, it turns out that there's B cell population that develops and is well studied in mice, but we think there are analogs in humans. Um, and these B cells are kind of like the regular mature B cells we've been talking about, but they emerge during fetal life. And they have a pretty restricted set of B cell receptors. And they're selected to recognize dying cells in the host. So there's, you know, there's an example of a very well-defined B cell population that is selected to be self-reactive, and it's probably selected to be self-reactive partially because of this cross-reactivity with a really important pathogen. But maybe there's some um, less well-defined variation on that that's relevant in regular B-cells as well. Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? Hmm, it's hard to remember. It was so long ago now. Um, <laughs> um, I, I did. I mean, I started doing some research in a lab in high school. Oh, and, wow. Um, just af after school, I, mm -hmm. I, I went to high school um, at um, a science high school called Stuyvesant in New York City. And um, there was a pretty well-supported... Did you want to go to that high school? Like, you're like, I want to go to the science high school? You yeah, know? <laughs> I did. I was very excited about it. Um, kids from all over the city would go to the school. When I went there, it was located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, and not not everybody was science. It was sort of like a science and math-focused mm. high school. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the juniors and seniors had the opportunity to kind of look around for research opportunities. So um, I spent some time going after school and during the summers to um, a lab at NYU, which was maybe 15 blocks north. So it was actually pretty close and worked out well. 
And um, I just thought it was, I thought graduate students were like these really mythical, exciting creatures that led <laughs> glamorous lives because, you know, I was 15. Yeah. And it's, just the fact that they lived without their parents seemed exciting to me at the time. Um, so maybe there was some imprinting that occurred at that point. What kind of a lab did you work in in high school? Um, so it was actually a pharmacology lab. Um, the type of research and assays that I was involved in um, are extremely different from anything I ended up doing later. Um, but I think the, the, the environment and the culture of the lab was really fun and exciting. And um, my mentor was uh, a like really supportive um woman scientist and I, I think awesome. it like influenced me clearly <laughs> that's amazing cool so Thank I you. guess now that you asked probably I did want to be a scientist and I've, yeah. I've just forgotten yeah <laughs> it sounds like it you went to like I've a definitely high meandered over the years I wanted mm-hmm. at some point to be an architect and later to be a philosopher but somehow did cells. you go down those routes? <laughs> like, you explore um, those things? I'm sure oh, all only the, that only type loosely of, by like I'm drawing sure all that in my notebook. Thinking like influences <laughs> everything. You know, like just thinking deeply about something else for a little bit, even doodling in your notebook, can like contribute <laughs> to the way you think about B cells and T cells. Maybe you know, you never know how your experiences are shaping your reality. You know, broadly speaking, I sort of like where are sort of the the larger, the bigger questions that you have the directions that you're going in terms of your research. Because I know that like when we get down to the nitty gritty of science, we we're kind of solving like one little tiny problem at a time, but it's like applied to a bigger picture. So I guess what is that bigger picture for you? Well, I think there are a couple of different things that drive me. I mean, sometimes I, I think what's really satisfying in my research is just stepping back and having a bigger understanding about how um, the immune system is wired to work properly. And so just the basic understanding of some of these mechanisms is very satisfying. But um, I think there are applications that present themselves in unexpected ways. Um, so one um, uh, one mutant mouse that we've ended up studying um, lacks a transcription factor. It can bind DNA and drive the expression of other genes. Um, but there are thought to be some um, uh, agonist antagonists that you can generate that could be drugs. And one thing we um, discovered about its function is that it represses B-cell responses um, downstream of B-cell receptor stimulation. And what that means practically is that if you immunize a mouse that lacks NER77, you make much higher titers of um, protective antibodies. So um, one idea is that's sort of unexpectedly emerged from our basic investigation is what if we could transiently inhibit the function of this protein with an antagonist, so something that blocks its function? Um, You could imagine using something like that in conjunction with all of our existing vaccines to boost the amount of protective antibody you make to a vaccine. Um, so just enhance your adaptive immune function at a very spe- specific point in time. In 2017, researchers discovered that you can control multiple sclerosis by getting rid of B cells. This type of work is translatable to many kinds of immunotherapy, which plays a role in the treatment of cancer and other autoimmune diseases. And it's been really exciting for the field of immunology. 
And actually, there's a huge uptick in um, people applying to immunology graduate programs that are inspired <laughs> by this because, you know, now there are New York Times articles about the immune system. <laughs> to be fair, in high school, I think um, the most interesting thing I remember encountering when I was learning about the immune system was autoimmune disease. So, like, I guess it worked out well that now I'm in auto in, auto, in autoimmune disease lab. So, <laughs> um, although I didn't really intend it that way. <laughs> well, I think it's this inevitable um, <clears throat> Achilles heel of the immune system. If you express a random array of T cell receptors or B cell receptors you're in grave danger of recognizing some protein or carbohydrate that's expressed on the body's own tissues. So I, I agree. I mean, I think it's a, a fascinating engineering problem for the immune system. And um, I think autoimmunity plays a huge role in medicine and the diseases we see and treat, of course, especially in my clinic since... So you you run a clinic? So... Um, I see patients in clinic at UC, in uh, it's a, the arthritis center at UCSF, and um, I see patients in clinic with different kinds of autoimmune diseases. So um, this can include patients with um, autoimmune forms of arthritis, with lupus, um, with autoimmune forms of lung disease or muscle disease, um, and a, a range of other either less well-defined or rarer conditions. Uh, so it's it's very rewarding and interesting. Do you get to study all these people like while they're also like receiving some type of care or like um, like how does that work? I guess. So there's usually a separation between um, treating patients in clinic and translational research of human subjects. At this point, uh, I basically just treat patients and study mice. You know, you also mentioned which really inspired me about how you got scooped so many times, you know, how did you deal with that? I mean, that's like a really challenging, I would imagine that it would take a lot to like motivate yourself to go forward after that. Just the idea of it happening is like traumatic. The worst case scenario, I feel like in science is getting scooped. And so the way that you've been able to handle yourself and your science and your project and like come back is like really inspiring. Well, it's not, you know, and I I would argue it's not really the worst case scenario at all. And there are many things about it that are great. So you might laugh, but I, you know, I know other colleagues of mine where this has happened. And one of the really good things is that at the end of the day, when you publish your stuff, um, there are at least two publications that ideally have the same set of observations, maybe taking slightly different approaches. And what that means is your science is reproducible, mm-hmm. which is actually really important and really comforting. It's like because, a big checkpoint. It's like, yes, what we you did really that. want is not to study a house of cards. You right. want to be studying something with a really firm foundation. That's everybody's goal. And... Um, reproducibility, I think, has been called into question in American science. And so one of the great things about being scooped is reproducibility. Check. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's actually a big point and a reassuring point. So I feel good about those kinds of things. Well, you're so positive and you've got such great energy and it was just so great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for Thank spending so some time with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to visit and talk. Yeah, definitely. All right. This is Radio Bio signing off. This episode was brought to you by Genevieve Mullins and Jackie Shea, 
produced by Austin Perry, edited by Jasper Toscani Field and Jackie Shea, and artwork was done by Kinsey Brock. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.